Okay, Psalm 71. You may notice right at the beginning that there's no heading on Psalm 71. No heading. Now, I should offer, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm, I'm really feeling generous, a dollar. If someone can tell me the one other psalm in book two that has no heading. This is just personal. This is not from the congregation. Um, uh, but can you tell me that psalm? This won't be on the test. <laughs> <laughs> this is the test. Yeah. yeah. What? 43. Did you just guess that or mm-hmm. did you? You're right. <laughs> I am. I am. I don't know. I never have any money with you. I will. I'll pay you back. But yes, Psalm 43 was honestly, did you not? No, I didn't know. <laughs> Okay, well that's pretty that's pretty amazing. I do owe you a dollar, and I'll tell all of you remind me to bring it. Do you have a dollar with you? Okay, she'll pay you. She'll pay you, and I'll pay I'll pay her back. Okay, but Psalm seventy one has no heading. The last time we had the psalm without a heading is Psalm forty three, and but it does have a heading. <clears throat> In the Septuagint, it says there, by David, a psalm sung by the sons of Jonadab and the first that were taken captive. And that, that's the heading of Psalm 71 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. But a lot of people have used this to say, like we did about 42 and 43, that they may well be the same psalm. Psalm. And some have done that with with 671. I don't think you can make that. You can make a case for that. I don't think it is as clear of a case as you can make from Psalm 42 and 43. Uh, But when you read the psalm, Leanne, I did hear you saying something else about it before. What is the author's standing in life when he writes the psalm? What is his situation in life? Okay, he's old. He says that in verse 9, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. In verse 17 and 18, O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I will declare your wondrous deeds. And even now, when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all um, who are to come. So, you see, he is old. He has a lifetime of trust in God. Look at verse 5 and 6. For you are my hope, O O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth, yet you are he who took me from my mother's womb. So he is an older man. He has for his whole life trusted in God, but he faces another crisis from which he is begging deliverance 
And he is affirming that he will praise God and he will give him thanks. A lot of writers call this a psalm of lament, but there is there are actually more words of praise than there are of lament. There are more words of praise. And so I find it difficult, like a lot of psalms, to characterize. But what the psalm will often do is describe a difficult situation and then describe his trust in God. And, and, it, and it goes from this, the difficult situation from which he's begging deliverance to the uh, trust and praise three times from verses 1 through 8 in verses um, in verses 9 through 17. This, this divides it up in 18 through 24. But let's read verses 1 through 8 and uh, break it apart little by little. In you, O God, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. But by you I have sustained, I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My my mouth is filled with praise, and you uh, and with your glory all day long. Always pay attention when we're studying a psalm like this to what the psalm reveals to us about God, about the Lord. What does it reveal to us about who He is and what we need to learn about Him in our lives, whether it be a time of praise or whether it be a time of distress. What do the psalms teach us about him. Always keep that in mind. Uh, but in, in this section, a lot of Psalm 71, too, is going to pick up on previous psalms. For example, 1, 1 through 3 fits almost exactly with Psalm 31, uh, 1 through the first part of verse 3. Very, very similar there. But what are some things in that section he said of God? I said to pay attention to that when we're reading through a psalm. But what are some things in verses 1 through 8 that he stressed about God? God's righteousness in verse 2. Okay. God's righteousness. That is going to be a key term throughout the psalm. It is used first in verse 2, used in verse 2, but it will also uh, be used in verse 15, verse 16, verse 19, and verse 24. And God is a righteous God. God does righteousness in the sense that He sets 
things right. He brings justice. He vindicates His faithful servant. He judges those who are wicked. But the righteousness of God is stressed there and is stressed often in this psalm. What else? A strong refuge. Okay. God in verse 1 is a refuge. And in verse 7, as Mary mentions, a strong refuge. God is a refuge and a strong refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. God is, go ahead. Sorry, I have it in three, two on mine. Strong refuge, be my strong refuge. I think you had that rock of habitation. There is question about how that should be translated. How is it translated there? And what translation is it? Strong refuge, New King James. New King James. Strong refuge. Um, there are two words that are very similar uh, in Hebrew and there's a question uh, should we change one of the letters and, and, um, and sometimes the versions, the ancient version I don't remember if it's a true at this point but the versions disagree and that makes for a difference but this is about the specific word but it may be present in more places than that. And because God is his refuge, I think that leads to these calls like deliver me, rescue me, save me. Because, because God is our refuge. He is one to whom we can look for help and we can look for strength. So much could be said. There'll be other things, and we can ask this question as we finish through verses 1 through 8 to just see who God is. That's the greatest revelation in Scripture. But he says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. And really, the wording here is really dramatic. Let me never be ashamed forever. Or let me never, never be ashamed. And this idea of being ashamed is going to be used also in verse 13 and in verse 24. And there he is asking that shame come upon the wicked. But here he is begging God, let me never be put to shame. This goes back goes back to uh, Psalm 70. Psalm 70 verse 2, let those be ashamed and humiliated who seek their life. Verse 3, let those be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. Now, by the way, verse 24 is the last verse of this psalm. If you take Psalm 71 as a distinct psalm, which I believe we probably should, you see the psalm begins and ends with that same key word, asking that he never be brought to shame, but asking that God calls shame upon those who seek his hurt. At the same time, you could use those same words to make the tie with Psalm 70 and to say it all was one psalm originally. 
But in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. He doesn't appeal to his righteousness in this request. He appeals to God's righteousness, even though he is sought to be a servant of God. Because God does right, he is calling upon God to deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Deliver, rescue, save, all different words. And he asks that God be a rock of habitation to which he may continually come. Verse 3. And this word continually is going to be used also in verse 6. And he says in verse in verse 3, he said, You have given commandment to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. God is his refuge. God is his strong refuge. The same kind of idea. God is my rock and God is my fortress. God uh, is a God in whom we can rely, on whom we can depend. In verse 4, rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of of the wrongdoer and ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord. You are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Now verses 5 and 6, Psalm 71, verses 5 and 6 are very similar to Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. Uh, I would say this. In Psalm 22, I think there's a little more emphasis, there's a little more emphasis in Psalm 22, 9 and 10 on the fact that David has trusted God his whole life, even from his youth. Here... And you might disagree with this, and if so, you can state that. But verses 5 and 6, to me the case seems to be, this is really saying more about what God's done for David than David's trust in God. Seems like to me that's the case. You're my hope. There's another thing we learn about God. You're my hope. You're my confidence. God has sustained him. Every step of the way. God took him from his mother's womb. Now one writer made the statement here. Psalm 71 in verse 6. More literally than Gimmerin wrote in his commentary and expositor series. More literally, it means from the inward parts of the mother, you were the one cutting me loose. God is depicted as the midwife in the psalmist's birth, cutting the cord. Now, that's an interesting picture. We know when we bring a child forth from the womb in those conditions, they're utterly helpless. 
and dependent. And so is a picture of the psalmist helplessness and dependence upon God. God is rock. God is fortress. God is refuge and strong refuge. God is deliverer. He is totally dependent upon him. Verse 7, I have become a marvel to many for you are my strong refuge. Now, look at that word. It's translated marvel in the New American Standard Bible. What does your translation have? Wonder. 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 Anybody else? have a translation there. Portent? Uh, P-R-O-T-E-N-T? Yeah, portent. Portent? Uh, was, was the O before? Yeah, yeah okay, portent. Okay. This, this is the difficulty. Usually this word is translated wonder or sometimes sign and usually the word is positive. It is a positive sign. For example, it's a word that's used often to refer to God's wonders in the land of Egypt. It can be used negatively. That's not common. But an example of that is Deuteronomy 28, verse 46, as God is talking about the curses of the covenant. He uses this word. Now, I put the negative use by the word portent because portent doesn't seem to me to be an inherently positive term. Now, I may not be knowing the definition of portent, but it doesn't seem to me to be inherently positive where we think of wonder that way. Most commentaries take this as a positive thing that people have seen from David's life, his trust in God, it has been a wonder to them, it has been a sign to them, it has been a positive thing to them. But there are others who take it, some who take it and say, no, this is a negative thing that, that they, uh, they see uh, the bad things that have happened to him, as he will reference later, they see them as negative. As a, as a bad thing. Holman Christian uses the phrase ominous sign. Mm-hmm. Ominous sign, which is usually not good. <laughs> ominous sign. And so they take it more in a negative sense uh, there. And we'll talk more about what some of those signs are. But he says, My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day long. What thoughts do you all have about that? Now, did we leave out anything that we should have mentioned about God? I know we said more about God than we wrote on the board. The righteousness of God, God's a refuge, God is a strong refuge, He is a rock, He's a fortress in verse 5, He is a help, Um, He is our confidence. Is there anything else that we should have said about God? And if not that, you can just say something generally if you want. Bob? I had a column of reference. 
reference there on, on Marvel uh, that, that went to 1 Corinthians 4, 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle. Yes, yes. That no would be more of an ominous sign. Yeah, no matter what we take from that. Other people saw that, saw David's life and ascribed that to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he lived his life with God on his sleeve. Yes, yeah. yes, that's right. That's a good way to say it. He lived his life with God on his sleeve. And uh, John? In verses 2 and 3, the psalmist calls out to God to save him. And we'll see references, I think, to that later on mm-hmm. as well, too. There's also twice the word continually is in verse 3 and verse 6. Yes. And the term all day long will be used in verse 8, verse 15, and verse 22. I think it's, no, it's 24. 24, I think, is the last time. So, yeah, it, it always does me good to look for phrases that are repeated. I hope it does you good because I often call attention to it. Uh, but, uh, and we'll have four, a few more phrases like that. Um, let's... Let's read up to 16 anyway. Uh, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. This is verse 9. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver. O God, do not be far from me. O my God, hasten to my help. Let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. For I do not know the sum of them. I will come with mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness alone. In verse 9, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. And this word forsake will be used in verse 9, in verse 11, and later in verse 18. But he's begging God now that he is older. He has trusted in God and God has sustained him from his youth in verse 5 and even from birth in verse 6. And he's asking God, don't forsake me when I'm old. And I know some of you, and I was in a conversation like this yesterday, and uh, some of you uh, would think I was young. I know some of you would not, but there are some of you who would. A man that I grew up in a congregation in Tennessee in his Bible class, and um, he was talking to me. This wasn't the past time when I visited, but it was recently. Uh, and he said, he said something about it. He said, I'm, I'm proud of you boys. He came back. He said, I didn't mean to call you up. 
you're a boy. He said, I know you're a man. And I said, oh, I said, I appreciate it. <laughs> you didn't hurt my feelings at all. And I said, I, I took it as a compliment. Um, but as you get older, you don't have the strength to fight off enemies sometimes like you once did. And he realizes as he was completely dependent upon God in his earlier days, in verse 6, as he came forth from the womb completely dependent upon him, he realizes that too in old age. He's begging God not to cast him off. Begging God not to forsake him. And he gives a reason here why he's begging God not to forsake him. Because he faces some real difficulties. The difficulties are not as front and center in Psalm 71 as they are in some Psalms. But they are there. My enemies are speaking against me. They are watching for my life. They are consulting together. He sees them plotting. He sees them planning. He sees them desiring his destruction. And their line is God has forsaken him. He's begging God, don't forsake me. They have said God has forsaken him. God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him. There is none to deliver. Now, that phrase, um, the, there's a phrase in Psalm 3, verse 2, which is said when David was fleeing from Absalom in the heading. But it talks about the enemy saying uh, that there's no deliverance for him in God. This is what they're saying right here. God's not going to deliver him. God's not going to rescue him. God has forsaken him. God has forsaken him. And there is no one to deliver. This word deliver was used in verse 2 earlier in the psalm. Psalm 71 verse 2. It was one of our words that was used there. Uh, In verse 2, he was calling God in his righteousness to deliver him and rescue him. And now they are using that very same word and they're saying there's no deliverance for him in God. These enemies, one thing I think you see about these enemies, they convince themselves that they're doing God's will in opposing him. God's forsaken him. God's forsaken him. Uh, God's not going to deliver him. He's not living the way God would have him to live. And then he says in verse 12, Oh God, do not be far from me. Oh my God, hasten to my help. We all need the nearness of God. When the enemies are near, we need God nearer. And he says, oh my God, do not be far from me. Similar language in Psalm 22 verse 11. Oh God, do not be far from me. Hasten to my help. And this particular word was used in Psalm 70 in verse 1 and verse 5. God hasten to my help. And he uses it again. Oh my God, hasten to my help. In verse 13, let those who are my who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. He said in verse 1, may I never be put to shame for trusting in you. But but those who 
those who are my adversaries and adversaries of my soul, may they be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. The words reproach and dishonor were used together back in Psalm 69 verse 7. In Psalm 69 verse 7, Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. That word reproach will be used in all five times in Psalm 69. But here, let them be covered with reproach and dishonor. They're seeking to injure me. Verse verse 14 says, But as for me. Now, those words, but as for me, in, in Hebrew, is one word. It is a conjunction and or but, which is attached to the first person pronoun, me or I. And... But it's one word. But it often indicates strong determination. I'm going to quote a passage and you'll all know what I'm quoting here. And you'll tell me who said this. But as for me and my house will serve the Lord. Who said that? Joshua. Joshua 24, 15. And when he says, but as for me... It is the same one word as right here. What am I saying? The reason I call attention to that passage, this is a statement that whatever my enemies say, whether they say there's no deliverance for you in God, whatever they say, whatever they do, I'm going to put my hope in you and I'm going to praise you. And that's where we all need to be. May God help us. Whatever, however anyone else acts, this is what we're going to do. Micah? Is that the same in Psalm 5, verse 7? Yes, it is. Psalm 5, verse 7. Yes. I like Psalm 5, verse 7. That's the reason I was able to answer so quickly to your question. So, uh, but as for me, I will hope continually and will praise you more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all day long. Now, thinking about Hebrew parallelism, that often the words of one line define for us the words in the next line. The word righteousness in verse 15, what would it mean in that life? What would it mean? God's righteousness is His salvation. Yes. God's righteousness and salvation are used interchangeably in this verse. It doesn't mean that's the only definition in the Old Testament, but it does mean, if you look at righteousness often, it is closely connected to salvation. He says, I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of of your righteousness, yours alone. He's going to thank God. He's going to praise God. He is going to speak of God's righteous deeds. John? 
So the end of verse 15, for I do not know the sum of them, is that the sum of his righteousness and his salvation? There's questions about that. One of the reasons is because the word for sum is used only here. It's not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. So there's questions even about what the best translation of it is. But it seems to say, it seems to say just contextually, if we take some to be at least close to the idea, John, that when we ponder God's righteousness and God's salvation, it, it's more than we can get our arms around. It's this more says, than we can grasp. This says their limits. Uh, it says limits. This uh, Hebrew... Uh, <clears throat> Text. Okay. Um, okay. Tra- translation. What do others of you have in verse 15 as a translation near the end? Let me read the last part of the verse. For I do not know the sum, and of them is in italics. Do, do, do you others have. New, New King James says, For I do not know their limits. Do not know their limits. Okay. Do, do not, not know, know their limits. Measure. measure. Their measure. Okay. I the best I can come up with is that idea. God's greatness is always beyond our ability to describe. I, you know, I try to, and I and I and I have caught myself lately using this as an introduction of a lot of sermons, and it's always true. It's always true. But I don't want to use it so much that it becomes meaningless. But since we said, I try to say the text is greater than I am or we are. In other words, we're not going to plumb the depths of this in what we're about to say. That it's going to be greater than we are. And we can say that every time of every subject in the Bible... I don't want to wear it out so that it loses all meaning, but at the same time, when we think of God's righteousness and God's salvation, I imagine that our deepest and loftiest thoughts of God and His salvation are just so far short of all the depth and richness of that that we could say we don't know the sum of them. Or limit of them. Okay. Verse 17. And let's read through the rest. And Oh God you have taught me from my youth. And I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray. Oh God do not forsake me. Until I declare your strength to this generation. Your power to all to come. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You have shown me many troubles and distresses. You will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp. Even your truth, O my God, to you I will sing praises with the lyre. 
O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul which you have redeemed, my tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long. For they are ashamed, for they are humiliated and seek my hurt. In verse 5 and 6, God is his confidence and hope from youth. In verse 6, God has sustained him from his earliest times. And now God is declared to be, in verse 17, his teacher. His teacher, you have taught me and I shall declare your wondrous deeds. Those who are qualified to declare God's wondrous deeds are those who have been taught of God. The reason we read the Word, we study the Word, we reflect upon the Word is because we want to listen to God's voice so that we might be competent to guide others and to lead them. In verse 18, when I am old and gray, do not forsake me. We talked about that idea before verse 9. When I'm old and gray, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation. The word declare was used in verse 17 and verse 18 in the New American Standard, same Hebrew word, until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. I don't know if I can say this succinctly, but I can remember a man telling me that he had a couple of little children and his wife got cancer and it looked very bad and he begged God please spare God I cannot raise these kids on my own please spare her to help me raise these kids and she did he did in his mercy she lived 17, 18 more years. And he said, of course, then I was begging God for more time. But at the same time, he had spared her through what the most vital moments of her life were. My children are not dependent upon me the way they might have been years ago why has God spared me? Why has God spared us? You think it may be that he spares us to tell of what he's done to another generation? Maybe the purpose of our existence is to speak of him and his greatness to our grandchildren, to everybody that will listen, not them alone, but to tell them of the greatness of God. In verse 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. I, I, I like the passages that speak of God's attributes reaching to the heaven. Let me give you just a couple of them. Psalm 36, verse 5, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heaven. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. He uses the highest 
then he uses the lowest. That was Psalm 36 and verse 5. In Psalm 57, Psalm 57 in verse 10, your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Psalm 57, 10. Here, your righteousness reaches to the heavens. Notice, though, the merism. And what I mean by that, the complete opposites. In verse 19, your righteousness reaches to the heavens. To the end of verse 20, it says, and you will bring me up from the depths of of the earth. From verse 19 to 20, you go from the highest high to the lowest low. In the highest high is God's righteousness that can deliver. And it can deliver those who are in the lowest low, who are in the depths of the earth. But you, your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? When the Bible asks that question, who is like the Lord? What is sometimes the subject? I think most of the time is the subject. Uh, I I couldn't say that for sure. When the Old Testament proclaims that question, who is like you? It may be a very difficult question if you haven't thought about it before. But it's, it's declared first in the context of the exodus from Egypt. You know, who is like you in Exodus 15, 11? And it particularly seems to center on God's power. It can also center on God's forgiveness or mercy in Micah 7. Who is like the Lord? Who is like God that that treads our, that, that throws our iniquities in the sea and treads them with his feet? God is the one who does that but who is like the Lord as he thinks of God's righteousness reaching to the heavens he exclaims that there is no one who can compare to God as we sing in our song there is none like him none can compare no God his equal no prince his heir in verse 21 or excuse me verse 20 you have shown me many troubles and distresses He doesn't state his life has always been easy. He even attributes it to God. You have shown me many troubles and distresses. And you will revive me again. That word revive me, make me live again. And bring me again from the depths of the earth. He can bring him out of the nearest death experience. Hmm. Verse 21, may you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. In verse 22, I'll praise you with a harp. Even your truth, O my God, to you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. Now, generally, if you're reading the phrase, Holy One of Israel in the Old Testament, what book are you in? Leviticus talks about God's holiness. But the whole phrase, Holy One of Israel, is used 25 or 26 times in Isaiah. And only six times is that phrase used after outside of Isaiah. Three of them are in the Psalms. One of them will be in Psalm 78, which will be on not long from now, Lord willing. But he said, O Holy One of Israel, my lips will shout when I sing praises to you. 
my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long, for they are ashamed, they are humiliated who seek my life. Now, there are a couple technicalities I want to look at from this text in just a second. But let me ask you, what, what are your thoughts there that we should add to or... Okay, let's just make a point here. And I know I said something like this in a sermon recently. But I want to say it again. And maybe I need to keep saying it. To get better at saying it. And to let the thought weigh on you as well. It is clear in reading the Psalms and in other places in the Old Testament, you can see that instrumental music was acceptable to God. There are some that have made the point over the years that instrumental music really wasn't acceptable in the Old Testament. And part of it is because Amos 6 condemns the playing on instruments when they were living at ease. But but they're overstating the case. Um, and, and maybe, you know, it's overstating the case, um, not ultimately doing the, the cause of service. The, all of verses 24 through 22 through 24 talk about vocal music. I will praise you. I will sing your praises, verse 22. Verse 23, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises. In verse 25, my tongue will utter your righteousness. All of these talk of vocal praise, but clearly verse 22 also talks about instrumental praise. I will praise you with a harp. I will sing praises with the liar. Now, it's clear here that in this passage that <coughs> instrumental music was used to praise God in the Old Testament. Um, in 2005, Melvin Curry did a lecture at Florida College on the use of the instrument. And he was talking about the instrument in the Psalms. And he gave these stats, and he gives you the verses, and I can let you look at this if you desire to. But he said instruments are specifically mentioned in only 17 Psalms and in eight headings to the Psalms. So he said they're mentioned in 25 Psalms in all, which he states is 16.7% of the entire collection of the Psalms. Now, I know that's pretty detailed as Mary's laughing at his statistics. <coughs> but sometimes when we think of the whole book of Psalms, we say, you just hear the word Psalm and we think instrument. And that's not necessarily true either. It's not true to say about the Psalms that 
instrumental music wasn't acceptable at that time. But it's not true when we say psalms that that always means just playing on an instrument and that there was never a mention of singing exclusively. We, we even saw that recently as we saw in Psalm 69 in verse 30. I will praise the name of the Lord with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 69 in verse 30. And again, I know I might be running this point in the ground, but what you have in the Greek translation here is you have the word solo. And I can't remember if it ends like this or it ends like this, but the word verb solo. The verb solo plus a Greek preposition in, which can mean in, with, or by. Solo plus in plus the instrument. Now, let me give you some verses where you have this construction if you want to look it up. Uh, you have this even outside the Psalms in 1 Samuel 16, verse 16, as they are looking for someone to play on the harp for Saul. But Psalm 33, verse 2, uses that construction. Psalm 98, 5, and this is all with Psalm 71, 22. Psalm 144, 9. Psalm 147, verse 7. Psalm 149, verse 3. That you have this Greek word, which is used, which is used in Ephesians 5.19 and used in Colossians 3.16. <coughs> You have the word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament plus this preposition plus the instrument. And it's the same basic structure that you have in these verses where you have a form of this verb. In some manuscripts, in a lot of manuscripts, it, the preposition does not appear. In Ephesians 5.19, but it does appear in Colossians 3.16, does appear in some manuscripts. And then it talks about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with your heart to the Lord. Now, I don't know if I stated that well. Do you all have a question about that? I do think this is helpful for us to see when we think the argument is that some would say this word inherently includes the instrument. And Everett Ferguson goes into detail stating he doesn't believe that that is the case, that it never inherently included the instrument. And when it does mention the instrument, it's usually set up in this format. 
Um, and the instrument with which we make music before God today is, is our hearts. Now, if someone were to say, if someone were to say, no, 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 that's just not the case. And, and there have been some that have written things to try to refute things like Ferguson has said, things like M.C. Curfee just wrote a book about instrumental music where he deals with this word. There have been people written to refute that. And they'll say, oh no, this, this absolutely includes the instrument. If it does, I want you to understand the consequences. It is not acceptable not to use the instrument. If this word includes it, it's not acceptable to say, oh, you cannot use it if you want, but you can't buy it. No, if this includes it, you've got to use it. You've got to use it in worship. And, and I don't know many who argue for the instrument who would state that. Are you all familiar with um, the letter of Pliny to Trajan? Pliny was a governor of Bithynia. And Trajan was a Roman emperor. And this, and this is after New Testament times, slightly after New Testament times. Trajan's dates are about 98 to 117 A.D. And Pliny the governor is written, writing to him asking about whether, how do I deal with Christians? When somebody's accused of being a Christian and they come up before me, how do, how, how do I deal with that? And, and by the way, reading that, and you can easily find that online. It makes us so thankful for the ability we have to worship God openly. He talked about how he would ask him the first time if he's a Christian, and then threaten him if he said yes. And then a second time, and then a third time, he'd throw them in prison and wait until a higher official came and he stood trial. But this is one thing Pliny says in his letter to Trajan. Now, this is an unbeliever writing to another unbeliever about Christians and explaining what they do and how they live. And I'm just taking a part of it. But he says, They stated that they came together. They were accustomed to meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn among themselves to Christ as if he were a God. This unbeliever is not concerned whether instrumental music is acceptable or not. But he is just stating, this is what the Christians have told me they do. And what did they do? They came together and they sang a hymn to Christ as though he were a God. And yes, indeed, he is. He is. Anything that you want to ask about there or question? I, I, I think that's really important, uh, what you just said about uh, uh, these uh, mentions in Psalms of these instruments. If, if this is thinking that, that this, is, uh, this is to be done, 
it, it doesn't give us a choice. I mean, no. you can't, I can't say, well, I, I just uh, think it would be okay. It wouldn't yeah. just be okay. Yeah. But there's, there's something else, too, along this line. And the old saying, what proves too little proves too much. Uh, if, you, if you would use a verse like that to try, try to say, uh, well, can, uh, Paul says to sing psalms. Okay, could we, could we sing Psalm 33 uh, in the first couple of verses? It's talking about singing with the lyre and the harp and so forth. Well, if, uh, if that means instrumental music is okay in our worship today, you, you could go to passages like Psalm uh, 66, 15, I'll offer to you burnt offerings. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Of rams, I shall make an offering of bulls and male goats. Selah. That might be interesting to compare how frequently sacrificial offerings are mentioned in the Psalms with how frequently the instruments compare. That might be an interesting comparison. Um, maybe I will write Mr. Curry and say you need to, you need to investigate that. <clears throat> I've got too much to do, but you can do that. <laughs> Um, but but that would be interesting, and that's a good point. That is a good point. Um, and by the way, there are, and I, I have to say, there is a certain amount of respect I have for this position. There are some conservative Presbyterian groups who believe you could only sing the Psalms in worship. You believe you can only sing the Psalms, and they are a cappella. Those same groups are so diligent, they are also um, non-instrumental. But they believe you can, they don't see the inconsistency between singing a Psalm 33 and not using an instrument. But that is a good, that, that's a very good point you made. Are there other passages that you didn't share, or is that pretty much the sum of that? Is, that is, those are the ones that I'm seeing now. I'm sure if someone could do a technical computer search, they would feel more more confident in linking all of these passages together. These are the ones, and I looked them all up as far as the basic construction in the Greek translation, and they all follow that same format. So these are the ones he lists in his book, and I think also... Uh, I looked in, in a lot of Mr. Curry's material because later than this work by Everett Ferguson was probably influenced by it, but he uh, gave the same list of passages. If I if I have missed anything, I'll try to come up with come up with more. Let you know. And it's now this is not to say that there aren't other passages in the Psalms that mention the instrument, but I'm talking about with particularly in the Greek the Greek translation that you follow. Um, plus the instrument like this. Um, okay, now we get to the part of class that we all do, that you all do so well with every week, and we ask, "How does this psalm speak of Jesus?" And uh, let me erase. We're going to need to need some room here. But how does Psalm seventy-one? Speak of Jesus.
in verse 11, David is saying, they're, they're saying of him, God has forsaken him, uh, pursue and seize him, for there's no one to deliver. Isn't that what they were saying about well, Jesus? Well, someone turn over it real quickly and read Matthew 27, verse 43. Matthew 27, 43. If you read... He trusts in God, let him deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. So yes, they're kind of mocking the fact, you know, God's not going to deliver him. It's not exactly the same words they use, but it's the same idea. It is the same idea that he's using. Here they're saying God has forsaken him. There's no deliverance for him in God. And there they're just mocking. They're confident. God's not going to deliver him. And God is not going to rescue him. Okay? The, uh, the, phrase, the, the, the verse where he talks about... Uh, Serving God, 17, you, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. Makes me think about when Jesus was 12 years old yeah. in the temple. Okay. And, 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 and yet, you know, that was the first we know yes. uh, as, a, as a youth, and yet, you know, he continued to... Okay, very good. And he, he is declaring God's praise there in Luke 2. Verses 41 through 52. By the way, as you know, the only event that we know about the life of Christ from the time he was an infant to the time he was 30. It's got to be important. It's got to be important. You know, and I, I, I said for years, this is the only event that we know of between in that span of Christ's life. And I thought... But I never did really explore it. One day I just sat down and I read, and there are all kinds of connections how this Passover prepares for the final Passover of Jesus. But there are all kinds of connections with the story of Jesus in that particular respect. Um, somewhere I have those notes. Kind of like the, the Hebrew writer said, somewhere in a certain place. But, um, but, but uh, what, what other thoughts? What other thoughts? Well, I think in verse 20, it says, You've shown me many troubles and distresses. Will revive you who have shown me many troubles and distresses. Will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the, of the earth. Uh, uh, and I, I, David is speaking figuratively there, but yes. uh, uh, when, when Jesus was on the cross, they were saying uh, God's forsaken him. Uh, if, if God would have him, let, let him save him now and so forth. Yes, he saved others, can't save himself. Uh, but uh, uh, I think it referred, this, this would, I get a picture of the resurrection. Yes, I do too. And we want to we want to save that a little bit. Let's come back to that in just a second. But I, but I do think while while in this passage David may be talking about deliverance from a near death experience, uh, let's let's come back to that because I do think it does have reference to the resurrection. But but just like seventy one eleven, 
where the people are saying, God has forsaken me. So in verse 10, my enemies have spoken against me and those who watch my life have consulted together. So his enemies speak against him. His enemies plot against him. They are devising his destruction. They are speaking against him. They are plotting against him. They want to bring about his demise. And uh, so you see that kind of language used. The word save that John mentioned that's used in verse 2 and um, verse 3. The word save, the word that's used in the Greek translation, one of the places where it's used is that Jesus shed loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him. Hebrews 5, 7. One who was able to save him. And, and, and so Jesus here is pictured as crying out to the one who could save him. But in a sense, there, there wasn't a deliverance for him. There wasn't a deliverance for him from the trial, from the crisis, from these enemies who spoke against him and who plotted against him. But God brought an even greater deliverance for him in raising him from the dead. As verse 20, even though the language may speak first of David's deliverance from a near-death experience, it is a deeper and fuller meaning in the resurrection of Jesus. And when you read the Psalms in light of Jesus, I don't see how we can miss that comparison between verse 20. That's one that just kind of jumps off of the page for us. Uh, one writer said uh, on verse 20, uh, he said, um, though, he said it, it, it proved tempting through the ages for Christian readers to read the resurrection in verses 20 and 21. Um, but but in, in its Old Testament audience, it probably refers to deliverance from death. But, he said, in light of God's full revelation in the New Testament afterlife, we should understand this in the deeper sense of the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, remember how the psalm started? Let me not be put to shame. And it prays that those who oppose him would be put to shame. The Bible says that the one who puts his faith in Jesus will never be ashamed. Romans 9 verse 33. Romans 10 verse 11. 1 Peter 2 and verse 6. If we put our trust and our hope in him, who was opposed, who was hated, that they mocked and said there's no deliverance, the one who cried out to God to save him. If we put our trust in this one that God raised from the dead, in the end we will not be disappointed, ashamed, confounded. But all those who oppose him will. All those who set themselves against Jesus will be put to shame. Mary? Um, the idea in 17 and 18 about declaring God's works and His strength. I mean, His whole life was 
to show us God and yes. the works he did, the miracles, and then in his prayer in John 17 when he yeah. was declaring God to, to his disciples. Yes. You know, in a sense, too, the greatest declaration of Jesus is, is that which he makes when he's raised and the disciples make of him that they declare, when they declare the mighty works of God, the mightiest of all works is the resurrection. God brought him forth from the grave with a mighty hand, Ephesians 1. So, yes, very good, very good connection. Micah? Uh, in verse 7, we can see Jesus as being a sign, both a positive and a negative, a spectacle yeah. of sorts. Yes, yes. Uh, that, is, that is good. I, I, I was thinking of a passage, and the passage may use the term stone instead of the word sign, but the stone which the builders rejected become the chief's cornerstone, which will be from the Psalms. Uh, I'm thinking that the term sign is used of Jesus in that sense too. But I'm not coming up with the passage. Luke 2, I think it's Luke 2, 34-35. Let's see what what Simeon said. Luke 2, 34 and 35. Mary blessed, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointing for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the very end that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Well, that's, that's a, that is both a powerful passage and a sad one as well. Um, but Luke 2, 34 and 35 in connection with verse 7. Very good. Anything else? Tommy? Yes. Um, verse 6. Um, okay. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My prayer shall be continually of you. Okay. Um, he sleeps in his mother's womb. Yes, uh, yes, that's right. John left. Uh, John was leaping in the mother's room in Luke one thirty-five. Um, but it was John, not Jesus. But but, but that's okay because but you still you still have that idea elsewhere because the the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and um, and you and you shall uh, bring forth the child, and he shall be called the son of the most high God. I, don't, I think I'm quoting Luke one thirty-five. I mean, you may look over there. I think I'm in it. Uh, I think it's Luke 1, about 42, 43, where the babe leaped in her womb. The word overshadowed there in Luke 1, 35, um, is, it, is it, read it if you would, Claudia. 135? Yes. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Okay. Overshadow. I think this word is also used in the Transfiguration when they were when when the when, when the cloud overshadowed them. But it's only used like five times in the New Testament. And one of the, but one of the times the Greek word is used in the Old Testament is in Exodus 40, 34 and 35, where the cloud of God's presence overshadows the tabernacle 
And, and in a way, that, that just ties in the fact that that word is used of Mary conceiving Christ just ties into the fact that Jesus is the tabernacle where God and man meet. And God is fellowship with man. Y'all have been patient. I look here, it's 11, one hour and 11 minutes. And um, we still have a song that, that goes on that may be the song that never ends. Um, so, um, in just a second. So, but thank you for being here. And um, would you feel like leading prayer, Norm, or would you rather Micah do it? Would you feel like leading prayer? No. Okay, Micah, if you want to. God, we ask that you continue to look down upon us and deliver us out of our troubles. We, we recognize you as our rock and our fortress. When we look at the things around us, the things that we often put our hope in, we know that, that these things uh, are futile, that they will disappoint, that God, you will not forsake us. And we, we pour our hearts out to you in praise. And may we have the, the, the heart of this writer that we will, um, even as we get older and, and, and uh, our strength fails us, that we will still uh, share your goodness, your righteousness, and your salvation to the little ones around us that they will come to know you as well. Help us to be humble uh, as we seek your face, seek your righteousness, uh, and that we may always turn to you. Thank you for your word as we, as we find encouragement in it, and we see ultimately your love through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 <laughs> Do you want me to help you pass now? Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to mom organize It looks like so each one of these goes to a row of people. Okay. 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 Looks like we got four songs. So you've got, you can see the scripture references front to back. Uh,
verses 1 through 8 of Psalm 71 to the tune of, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord.71 9 through 13. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Uh, we've sung this before. Yeah. Do so. Do not reject me in the time when old age I shall see. Oh, God, but with reproach. 
verses 14 then through 19 uh, to the tune of Our Fellowship. But I with lasting confidence will hope continually, and I will add still more and more to all the praise of Thee. five verses to the tune of Amazing Grace. Yeah. 
next Tuesday, but Lord willing, in a couple of Tuesdays. And you remember we studied Psalm 15, which said of the righteous man that he swears to his own hurt and still keeps his word. And so, Lee and Hubert... If you wait till I'm carrying cash, you really can wait. Hard to we can wait. So I'll, I'll, I'll pay her back. Wife's money. I'll pay her back. What is mine is mine. <laughs> what the Bible says, I think. No, maybe no. it's what you say the marriage ceremony. No. <laughs> you can try the We've got a Bible lesson here, Tommy. For Christy, be careful who you get bound to. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Ye